Let's turn together to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 can, of course, be found on page 1 of your church Bibles. Uh, should be uh, relatively easy to find. It's also on uh, your, in your service sheets. Uh, Genesis 1. We're going to be, we're starting a series in Genesis. Um, we're going to go through chapters 11 between now and, and Christmas time. Uh, and these are, these are foundational, uh, fundamental truths, uh, the, the essentials, the, the, the building blocks of our lives. Uh, Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 3. And this is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which it is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was so, that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. What's our place in, in this world? What's, what's our purpose? That's, those are fundamental questions, aren't they? They're questions that everyone uh, on some level has to answer. There's, there's something about our humanity that whether, whether you're a, a beggar in the street or you're the, the king in the palace, you want to know what, what this life's all about, where we came from, why we're here, what's our purpose. And the good news for us is these are, are the questions that, that Genesis actually aims to answer. It gives us a, a real history of, of the, 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 the earth, the, the planet, our, our, our world that we've come to inhabit. And a few weeks ago I mentioned in passing that the, the context of, of Genesis was that it was, was written to, uh, in the wilderness years of the children of Israel. That God through Moses had called his people out of slavery in Egypt. But through their, their rebellion and their, uh, their, their fear, they found themselves uh, not entering the, the land that was promised, but rather wandering in the desert, seemingly aimlessly, longing to understand their God and longing to know their place in the world. Some things never change, do they? You know, it strikes me that, that in our modern world, we can, we can relate quite keenly to the, the children of Israel but with some uh, differences. You know, when we look at our, our history as a, as a Western people, we can trace the, the, the logic of our thought from, from the Enlightenment to today, where we were beginning to, the, the Enlightenment where we were beginning to hear the, the narrative that, that human thought is, is supreme, and that all we need is, is our observations, our science, to, and human wisdom to explain our existence. And that was followed by, by modernism and, and postmodernism that, that moved us more and more to, to individuality. That you are the, the center of your world. And what you believe is every bit as, as true as what anyone else believes. So just be you. Listen to your heart and find your truth. Now we find in secularism that we, we are truly wandering in a spiritual wilderness. We're still individualistic, but we're becoming more and more aware of just how, how broken individualism is, isn't it? That individualism 
fairly quickly becomes selfishness. We hear that in, in the social justice movement, don't we? It tells us that, that some people are left behind. Some people have, have been harmed by the individualism of others. The promises of the Enlightenment and all the, the philosophies that followed us that have left us, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, adrift and wandering a barren land, looking for meaning and for purpose. We're very much like the children of Israel, wandering in the wilderness, wondering where we came from, why we're here, and what's our purpose. Which is why the word of God that we hear in, in Genesis chapter 1 speaks to, the very, uh, to, our, to our very souls this morning. And there's three things that I think we should, we should all hear this morning from this passage. First of all, that God created, full stop. Secondly, science doesn't love you. And third, that God delights in his creation. So first, let's see that, that God created, full stop. And we need to stop and consider this, this first sentence of Genesis, don't we? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's actually an incredibly uh, profound thesis statement to lead with, isn't it? It's the, the opening gambit of the whole Bible. It not only tells us where we come from, but it points us to, to the, the central figure in all of our lives. It's God who created and he created everything that we see. And he created you and I. And there's no stuttering and there's no nuancing. It's the, this is the, the first absolute truth about our world. I would argue it's the gateway truth to understanding everything about ourselves and about our world. So let's think for a moment how, how this opens up our world to us. When verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth... There, there's a few essential truths that we can derive from that about the God who created it. That he's an immense God, isn't he? He's, he's a powerful God. He's a greater God than we could ever comprehend. First, that, uh, notice that in, in verse 2, there was, he, he created from absolute nothingness. The earth was formless. It was void. Everything you see and, and everything that you, that you don't see wasn't there before the beginning. All the incredible stars and all the, the far-off galaxies that we're, we're learning more and more about the, the, through, through space telescopes and, and, and probes going out. Uh, these things that are, that, that are being revealed to us didn't exist before God called them and spoke them into existence. They all came from a single creative source. And that is the God of the universe. And we can't even begin to, to wrap our minds around that, can we? We can't even begin to, to comprehend absolute nothingness. We can, we can barely begin to comprehend just how big our universe is. We can't, really, we, we can't really comprehend that either. And so if everything has a single source, and that source intentionally and, and deliberately created, think about how incredible and how immense that God must be. Actually, you can't, can you? You can't begin to imagine it. And that's, that's the point, really. That's the, the second thing that, that we see here. That this God is so immense. You and, I, you and I couldn't possibly know him unless he revealed himself to us. We couldn't possibly comprehend him. He's so great and he's so powerful that, that human understanding, he's beyond human understanding. 
This is why actually idolatry was such a, a heinous sin for the children of Israel. If you've, if you've not read uh, Exodus, I'd encourage you to go have a look at it and see what, what these folks did when they were out in the desert. They, they, created, they created a golden calf, an idol. It was such a heinous thing because it was an insult to suggest that a god of stone made by human hands could in any way resemble the, the god of creation. In the same way, it's ridiculous for us to think that we can, we can comprehend and understand this great God unless he's spoken into our world to reveal himself to us. And that's exactly what he's done, we believe, in his word, isn't it? That's what he's, he's done here in Genesis. You want to know where you came from? God's telling you. We came from him. He's revealed himself in a way that we can, we can begin to, to just barely grasp, just, just scratching, scratch the surface of his character. But we should always let this, this simple verse humble us to see that this God is, is greater than anything we could possibly conceive of. And we have to find our source of, and purpose in life in him. Indeed, the whole point of verse 1 is to, to place God above everything and everyone. If God is the creator of everything and the creator of you and I, then we have an obligation to, to love and to serve him, don't we? To allow him to be the center of our existence. In uh, the television show The Crown, I'm sure many of you have probably seen it. Uh, it's the, the Netflix drama. Uh, there was a, a scene at the end of the most recent series where uh, the, the fictional Duke of Edinburgh uh, goes to see the, the fictional Diana uh, and it's just before she decided to, to divorce uh, the, the then Prince of Wales. And he goes to see her uh, to, to kind of try and, and encourage her and confront her. And one of the, the things he says to her about the queen, because Diana's been struggling with life in the royal family and, and the implications of it. And one of the things he says to her is that she, the queen, is the oxygen we all breathe. She's the essence of all our duty. The problem, if I may say, is you seem to be confused about who that person is. And God in Genesis 1 is telling us that he is, he is the oxygen that we all breathe. He is the very essence of our, of our purpose as humans. And the problem that we have is as people wandering in the wilderness of our own wisdom is that we were confused about who that person is. You see, Genesis 1 verse 1 is, is actually the, the anchor of our lives. It's the compass that points us to our true north, the source of our true delight. It's, it's the foundation of all of life. God created, full stop. And this is why our, our second point actually runs the danger of being a bit of a rabbit trail. But bear with me here for a moment. I'll admit it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important for us to get. Our second point is science doesn't love you. Uh, science doesn't love you. It can't, it can't f- explain fully who you are or why you're here. And I think it's worth, it's worth underlining that point. If you want to, to know who you are and, and why you're here, science has, has nothing for you. It's insufficient to fully explain our world, as is all human wisdom. Science has to to serve the God that created it. This is why historically Christians have been been scientists. They're naturally curious about the world God created. 
And the thing we have to understand about science, and, and particularly modern science, is, is it, it, it's dependent upon creation being orderly. And it's dependent upon uh, people, flawed humans and their observations, isn't it? It's, it's open to, to corruption. It's open to uh, not being as objective as you, they'd like for you to think. But what Christianity asks you to believe is that there's a God who is at work in the world, that he created it, that he sustains it, that he redeemed it, and that one day he'll renew it. What Christianity asks you to believe is, is that God's actions in our world are, are sometimes miraculous. And we see that at times in his word. That sometimes his, his actions are work outside of and bend the rules and the laws of nature. In fact, the secular science doesn't, doesn't like miracles, does it? But here's the thing. They still want you to believe in one miracle. And this isn't my observation. This is actually a, a friend of mine who's, who's not a Christian who said, science asks us to believe in, in just one miracle. They don't like other miracles, but they, they want you to believe in just one. That everything came from nothing by blind luck. That there was a big bang, and that's where everyone, everything came from. But before that, it was just chaos. And that because of this bang, and because of, of millions, perhaps billions of years of, of random good luck, this, this system was created that's a closed system that we can, we can know and fully understand. When we look at our world, do, do any of us really think that left to itself, order would come from chaos? And when we look at our world, does common sense say that, yeah, you know what, this, could all, this all could have come from randomness? Christianity says that order was brought about out of chaos, but that was done by the intentional words spoken into the chaos by God the Creator. That in the beginning the world was empty and void, that there was nothing, and from that nothingness, God created everything. Which one sounds more plausible? Random order or a, from a massive explosion? Or the, the loving, careful, wonderful, planned and perfectly executed design of a God that we could never even begin to comprehend? Both are miraculous, aren't they? Which is more likely? Which one explains our world better? Which one actually gives us value? Which one gives us purpose? Which one gives us meaning? Hear what I'm saying here and, and not what I'm not. You know, I, I think science is a good thing. You know, this isn't an anti-science rant. I think it's a great thing. You know, we, because of science, because the world is, is orderly, and because we can make observations and we can do experiments, we've, we, we can see diseases and illnesses healed. We can, uh, we can do incredible things with, with computers and technology. We can... Uh, we, can, we can get in a car and drive across this country in a few hours instead of a few days or weeks on a horse. It's brilliant. Science is great. The technology that comes from it has been brilliant, but it's only that way because God made it that way. When you look at the, the history of science, though, there, there have historically been things that, that everyone agreed were true until they discovered that they weren't. You know, in Georgian times, doctors thought it helped patients to bleed them with leeches. They were sure it was a help. 
Like it was the common practice. This, the, the, science, the science was settled. They were dogmatic about it. And, and don't, don't necessarily believe everything you see in a period drama on the BBC. It wasn't like, you know, there were a bunch of, the, the majority were a bunch of quacks and then you had one sort of noble, intelligent person who thought, no, leeching, bleeding people with leeches isn't okay. No, this was, this was the understood medical, enlightened opinion. The settled science of the day. But the th- thing about science is, is the settled, accepted science is, is often fluid, and it will often change in, in, by, by leaps. And you can, if 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 you want to understand this more, you can go read uh, the structures of scientific revolution. If you want to understand how this works, there's periods where a revolution will happen, where we'll gain some new technology that enables us to know more about the world. The science's dogma can't explain everything, and it can actually be. Uh, dangerous and damaging at times. Why is that? Well, it's because science and, and, and simple secularism, I should really add, is, isn't capable of assigning or explaining value, is it? Why are humans the way that we are? Why are we naturally curious? Why can we understand the world in a profound way? Why can we appreciate beauty? Why can we love deeply? Well, it's because we've been created in God's image. It's one of those things that, that we can observe, I think, about ourselves, that we're different from all the other creatures and all, all the rest of creation. But it's not something that we can explain outside of the word of God. And here it is in, in verses 26 and 27. It, science can't explain love, can it? It can explain what happens chemically when you feel love. But that's not really love. Love is when you give yourself over wholly to another, and that's, that's what God did when he made man. He gave us his image, his likeness, and that's, that's something that can, be, can only be explained by his word. And this is the point where I, I should add briefly on, on how we explain Genesis 1 then, because uh, in, in, in the light of broader scientific theories. Because some of you are coming here this morning going, Rob, you know, how do you explain millions of years versus billions of years? How do you, you know, are you a young earth guy? I, the fact is, I don't know. And I don't think we, we have to uh, bring everything into alignment with what, what science, scientific theories say. See, point one, that's the main point. God created everything, and we weren't there. And Genesis isn't trying to be a book of, of science. I'm, I'm happy to accept differing views on days versus ages and so forth. But my, I'll give you my personal conviction just because I think you are entitled to it as, as I am your minister. You should know where your minister stands. Um, I see no reason why God couldn't do things exactly as it's written here. I see absolutely no reason why God couldn't have done it this way in the time frame described here. And I just want to emphasize, you do not have to agree with me to be a member of Grace Church. Again, C.1. The main thing we need to agree on is, is God did it. God created everything. We can hold different views on, on how long were the days and those sorts of things. And I'm happy to learn from your view as well. I'd love for you to share it with me. But that's, again, a bit of a rabbit hole What's our third point? 
Our third point this morning is God delights in his creation. Did you see that? The things that, that, that's so wonderful about creation and that's so uh, unique about the God of Scripture is that you, you get the feeling that God actually enjoyed creating. He enjoyed the work. He was pleased with the result. You hear him say uh, several times, God saw that it was good. We feel that, don't we? We feel that in nature, don't we? we you know, I, I think as, as Brits, uh, we feel the goodness of nature more perhaps than, than some cultures in some places. You know, uh, we go on, what, what do we do when we go on holiday? We go to the countryside for a ramble, don't we? And you can't go to the English countryside without appreciating the, the beauty and wonder of, of the natural world, the delights and wonder we feel in, in the natural world is an echo of the delight that God himself expressed in creation. But he saved his greatest delight for, for, for one particular aspect of that creation when he made man, when he made humanity. And once humanity was created, God, God looked at, at creation and says, it was very good. It was very good. The difference is subtle, but it's, it's worth underlining. It wasn't until someone created in God's image occupied creation that it became more than just good. It's like that, that, that final brush stroke of the artist where they then stand back and they, they look at the, the painting they've made and at the, the, the work that they've done. And they say, now this is, this is done. They're satisfied. It's very good. And we're going to talk more about the dynamic between man and God in detail next week. And we'll, we'll talk more then about, about what it means to be made in God's image. For now, I want us to, to appreciate the beauty and the wonder of the God who not only made everything, but who made you and I. And not only made us, but, but he delighted in us. He delighted in us. See, he's much greater than a, than a giant bang followed by millions and billions of years of, of, of blind luck. He's even greater than, than an intelligent designer who, who sort of made everything and now stand back, stands back and watches to see what's going to happen. He's better than all these views precisely because, because he's a God who is, is intimate with his creation. He delights in it. And that means he, he delights in you and I. When was the last time you felt that someone delighted in you? Genesis 1 says that at creation God delighted in humanity. And there was, there was peace and there was intimacy between God and man. You see, one of the most wonderful things about this creation account is that it reminds us that there was a, a moment in our history. There was a moment in the history of our world where there was pure beauty there was perfect peace and there was prosperity there was a moment in our history when God when God brought not just order from chaos but he brought what the, the Hebrews describe as, as shalom and shalom's a word that, that's commonly used as a greeting among Jews but it, it's a word that actually means uh, perfect peace and harmony all is well there is no trouble. It's a word that captures this moment of creation, I think. We hear that perfection in the seventh day, don't we? That's all, all that, he was, that he had made. And it was very good. 
and he rested on the seventh day and he, he set it apart as holy. And when we stop and truly reflect on the, the world described here at, the, at the, the end of the creation week, it probably sounds and feels quite foreign to us, doesn't it? For people wandering in the wilderness, this, this world that's described doesn't sound like, like the thing we live in at all. It sounds like the thing we long for, doesn't it? It sounds like the thing that our, our greatest ideologies in history right through to the present day have striven for. What does it mean that the world was once like this? How can we get back to a world like it? Well, the point of creation is to cause us to see where, where we've come from. We came from a, a loving and all-powerful and incomprehensible God who loved us enough to cause us to, to exist. And he created a world that is uniquely habitable by us fragile humans. And we should see the, the great and personal love of, of God and the intimacy with us that, that the psalmist would, would later describe as, as being knit together by God in our mother's wombs, as being fearfully and wonderfully made by him. God made each one of us, and he delights in us. He longs to delight in us more and more. See, creation should cause us to, to take stock of of who we are. It should cause us to take stock of what we've lost. If you cannot recognize the world described here, you're not alone. I often think we don't dismiss uh, the Bible's creation account simply because of, of uh, human wisdom or scientific discovery, but actually I think it's because it's just so hard for us to look at our world today and believe it was ever described as very good. I think it's hard for us to look at our world today and, and, and think it bears any resemblance to what God describes here. We can't look at our world today and think, I can rest from my labor. Our world today constantly asks more and more of us, doesn't it? Whether it's to, to do good to, the, to those who are in need, whether it's to, to gain the security of, of more money, Whatever it is, the world keeps asking it of us, doesn't it? See, creation should cause us to see what we've lost and to be convicted of the ways we've, we've actually contributed to that loss in our short lives. Because this is where we begin to feel our sin, isn't it? When we stop and realize that how, how we have rebelled against this great and singular God who made us. Lastly, creation should cause us to question it should cause us to question, can it ever be like this again? And if so, at what cost? See, this is, this is the central question we are constantly asking ourselves as humans, isn't it? We don't put it in these terms, but it's, it's the question that's, that's central to, to each one of us, to our humanity. How can we get back to what we were meant to be? Because we know whatever we are right now is not what we were meant to be. How do we get back to that, that paradise? Some might call it utopia. We've had political theories, haven't we? We've had uh, philo philosophical approaches. We've had scientific studies. We've had socioeconomic approaches. We try to make the world just and fair and equal and clean and prosperous. But the, the successes that we've had in our own attempts have been uh, small in the grand scheme of things and, and usually not, 
uh, globe, and they've usually been globally imbalanced, haven't they? Yeah, there was a, a business book back, it's probably 20 years ago now, I think it was the early 2000s, that was called Who Moved My Cheese? And in it, the, the, it, the, the business world is described as sort of a, a maze with a, with a bunch of mice running through the maze, and they're looking for cheese. Yeah, they're looking for that one thing that mice desire more than anything else, the cheese. And the problem was that as they're running through the maze, some would find a, a big pile of cheese, and and they would become satisfied. And they would just stay there with that, that pile of cheese until one day they woke up and realized the cheese was gone. And they would be left asking, you know, who moved my cheese? And by that point they were, they, they were too tired and they were too fat and they were too lazy to go looking for more. They'd lost their edge. And the, the, the point was in business you should keep an edge. You should be constantly looking and running for, for more cheese. And, and that's how, that, I, I think it's an interesting analogy. I think it's compelling because our, our world often feels like we're all running through a maze, doesn't it? Looking for that thing that's going to satisfy us. And the things that will, will undo the damage that's been done, that will, will make things right. And we either have to, to keep running on endlessly, looking for that one thing, you know, trying one thing after another after another, or we find that we, we stop and we're, we're satisfied until we find that thing that we thought was satisfying us leaves us empty and broken and unable to, to go on. See, we can't make the world what it was because it's, it's just not in our ability. It's just too costly the world was made by the God that we hear described in Genesis 1, then, then, then it's not in our ability to fix that which is broken. I think it would have almost been cruel of God to tell us these, to, to tell these people wandering in the desert about the joy and wonder of the world that he made before it was broken by our sin. If he didn't have a plan to make it right again. It would be cruel for us today to read this, this passage, wouldn't it? And to go, that's the world I want. That's the world I long for. Why are you telling me all this when it's not the world I'm inhabiting? And the answer is because the, promises of, the promise of God is that our, our world will, will know shalom again. That the things that are broken will be, will be restored that in the words of Tolkien, all that, that sad will become untrue. You see, the history, you, the, the history that we see here of the past presents us with, with a vision of the future. And the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that, that the payment to, to make things right has been paid in his death and resurrection. It's by his blood alone that we can gained the intimacy with God that was lost at the fall that had been enjoyed by Adam and Eve at creation. It's the blood of Christ that, that was the payment that will, at Christ's return, restore the full shalom of this God's world. See, the hope of the gospel and the joy of Genesis 1 is that all that's been lost, Christ has the power the wealth, and the will to restore. Let us pray.